You're listening to the Science Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking to Mark Jerome Walters about his book, Seven Modern Plagues and How We Are Causing Them. Mark Jerome Walters is a veterinarian. He's a journalist. He's a professor at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. And I got interested in this book because it brings together topics that we usually talk about separately, disease on the one hand and ecosystem disruption on the other. Like when we talk about Lyme disease, we talk about ticks and walking outdoors and dogs and things like that, but we don't usually talk about forests and biodiversity within forests. When we talk about HIV AIDS, we talk about the disease and the treatment and the history of the disease, but we don't usually talk about chimpanzees and African food systems. And this is what the fascination of this book is. Dr. Walters brings these things together and really helps us see that when you, basically when you seriously mess with things like forests, when you have fewer species and in particular fewer predators, when you pack animals into small spaces so that they can't stay clean or healthy, in other words, when you don't let land and creatures be the way they evolved to be, a lot of bad things happen, including diseases, human diseases, animal diseases, and all the suffering and pain and expense that go with them. Let's go now to Dr. Mark Walters. Welcome to the Science Radio Cafe. Thank you. So you write about these seven different diseases, including mad cow disease, HIV, AIDS, resistant strains of bacteria, viruses, flus, Lyme disease, and the underlying theme of the book, which is the relationship between disease and ecosystem disruption, is really beautifully illustrated in your chapter on hantavirus, which is, of course, particularly vivid for me, since we're I'm here in New Mexico. You describe conversations between the Centers for Disease Control and a group of Navajo elders when some people in the Navajo Nation died of this hantavirus. And it seems that the traditional Navajo understanding of disease really mirrors the emerging scientific understanding. Explain that to us. Well, it's interesting that on the surface, that would seem to be a big surprise. But to quote Yogi Berra, I think it was, who said something like, you can learn a lot just by watching. (laughs) And when you, you know, um, a group of people, a person who's observing something over long enough time is bound to begin to understand patterns. And that's what epidemiology is by and large. It may be difficult to prove these patterns, but there comes a point at, for example, if there's heavy rain and a short time after, a few seasons later, you see an increase in disease, um, that's going to begin to assume a shape and become predictable. And so it's really quite remarkable, nonetheless, that the Navajo were able to add quite a bit to the CDC's understanding of it. Um, Now we would bring different terminology to what was happening than the Navajo would have traditionally used. It's now clear that cycles of El Nino and La Nina and the corresponding increases in rainfall or decreases in rainfall sweep over the Colorado Plateau and affect the environment. It means that it brings more food, pinion nuts, whatever, for certain animals to eat, for mice, for example. It provides lusher grass for them to breed in, and it affects the population of the vector that spreads this. So it would be natural then that people living in those regions would become more vulnerable to catching that disease. The challenge comes in 
improving things to setting it up in such a way that it can be utterly predicted. And the Navajo made a lot of progress on that. And when CDC came out to study this, what was a total mystery to the CDC at the time, they found out that, wait, this has been uh, understood in many ways long before we got here in terms of the cycles of rain, the increase in the mice, the vectors of the disease, and illness in people. The other piece that is very important, I think, to talk about is that human activity is connected with emerging diseases. And this whole idea of emerging diseases goes back kind of to the, what is it, the dawn of agriculture, where there were several things that happened as we went from being part of nature, essentially hunter-gatherers, to domesticating animals and nature and forming cities and trade routes and things like that. How did those changes that we made as we developed and quote-unquote civilized, how did those changes affect illnesses that we human beings get? Well, humans, we are semi-permeable vessels. We like to think we live apart from the environment, but we don't. We are a clear extension of it. Life passes through us. We try to keep the pathogens, the damaging ones at bay that our immune system does. In order to develop resistance, it takes time. People with those certain immunities are selected to survive diseases. Well, that means that Every time there's been enormous changes, global changes in the environment, people have undergone readjustment period, often a devastating time. People look back and say, well, there were probably several great waves of diseases that passed through humanity. One of them, the earliest, was probably 10 or 15,000 years ago, when, as you mentioned, people began to domesticate animals and to live in a much kind of almost daily proximity to them. Naturally, a new balance had to be reestablished between the bugs and the people and the bugs and the animals. You know, not all bugs or bacteria are bad. Um, if we didn't have good bugs, we would all die very quickly because they really serve as a, a shield, even on our skin, displacing what would otherwise be known as pathogens. Well, you can imagine if people suddenly began living daily in proximity with horses or cattle or other animals then they're going to be subject to a lot more of the bugs that those animals carry. And it looks like measles, for example, could well have been traced to the time 10 or 15,000 years ago when people began to come in contact with these animals. And so on one hand, it always seems an amazing thing to look at, but when you step back and you say, well, that only makes sense. And so, yeah, people probably suffered their first great waves of death and devastation from emerging disease when we decided to have animals move in with us, so to speak. And now we are vulnerable because of the incredibly intense industrialization of the way we raise food. So for example, mad cow disease, which is the first chapter in your book, is a disease that it seems to be entirely the product of basically industrial food systems. Yes, that's right. And it's so interesting how we romanticize. And for some reason, for some good reasons, we tend to romanticize farming and agriculture. To this day, it receives great subsidies and it's still seen as a a lost kind of way of life in the U.S. In many ways it is. And yet, if you look at it from a slightly different perspective, there is no endeavor that has had a greater disruptive impact Um, changing the surface of the earth than agriculture. 
one example, as you point out, is mad cow disease. After World War II, people began to, or actually during the war, they began to look at ways to be more energetically efficient in the use of food. And so rather than disposing of the inedible parts of cows, for example, people began to render these to make them usable in one form or another. Well, that whole process seems to have entwined into the food system a very strange protein. It's a perfect disease, mad cow disease, because it's already dead, and yet it can kill you. You can't kill a protein. It's something that you can barely get rid of with most traditional forms of sterilization. Where these proteins that then began to accumulate in people and causing mad cow disease originated, uh, nobody knows for sure, but it seems to be related to a neurological disease in sheep um, called scrapie. And they call it scrapie because the sheep scrape themselves. It, it affects the neurons. And, uh, and then once they began rendering sheep, not for human consumption, but because they could use these waste products to feed other animals, that's where the energy saving comes in, that then cows essentially became carnivores rather than the herbivores that nature and evolution had made them out to be. And so in beginning to eat these rendered sheep parts, which had this protein in it, cows then became infected with this protein. As people then began to eat the cows, it was transferred to humans, and it emerged as mad cow disease. So there was a good example of how high-intensity industrial agriculture, just as you mentioned, uh, gave rise to a human disease that fortunately was understood fairly soon so that that corridor of transmission could be closed off. But um, that's only one of a number of diseases agriculturally related. I think of even greater importance is antibiotic resistance. Right. Because as most people know, if you take one antibiotic too much or you don't finish the course of it, then a few of the bacteria it was meant to kill survive. Who, the ones that survived tended to be the ones that were resistant, more resistant to that in the first place. And so then they begin to breed and they pass on their resistant genes. Well, it turns out you don't just have to take them yourself commonly to have these antibiotic resistant strains of bacteria emerge. If you feed animals, for example, cows, an antibiotic that's closely related to an antibiotic humans take, then those cows will begin to develop resistance to it. Those bugs can then jump to people. And since they infect both cows and people, when they jump to people, we not only get that bug, but it brings with it the antibiotic-resistant genes. That means when we then go to treat it, it's ineffective. And you find some of the foodborne illnesses, such as salmonella, for example, they're bad enough in and of themselves, but when you've then selected for antibiotic-resistant genes by feeding this antibiotics to the livestock, then that makes it all the worse. Unfortunately, that's begun to change. People have finally, despite the very powerful lobby of the agriculture and cattle industry, the FDA has begun to limit the use of antibiotics in feedlots. But here's the interesting thing. In most cases, or the vast majority of antibiotics used in livestock are not even used to treat disease. For reasons that aren't completely understood, if you feed antibiotics to livestock, those cows will grow faster. 
Now, one could imagine that's because it's keeping the subclinical infections in check, and therefore it's enable, enabling them to, you know, to put more energy towards, towards growing meat rather than fending off these bugs. And so there, in an attempt to just gain a little bit more efficiency in growth of animals, we have really threatened the whole notion of antibiotics and undermining those that are effective for people in order to squeeze a little bit more productivity out of our animals. And as a veterinarian, I'm certainly not opposed to using antibiotics in animals. Now, we benefit from all the testing of antibiotics in animals, and surely they deserve to you know, reap some of the benefits of all the suffering and the testing that they underwent in order to perfect these antibiotics for humans. But to use them only to exploit the animals even more, that is to get another a few ounces out of an animal, is not only wrong ethically, but it's certainly ascientific. It's the antithesis of common sense when it comes to medicine. I think the way you put it in your book was animals are given antibiotics so that they can be clean on the inside when their conditions are dirty on the outside. So they're packed so tightly together that they can't live in a natural way where they keep themselves clean. And so these antibiotics basically compensate for a situation in which cows are, are living in really horrible conditions. I mean, now they're not eating meat anymore, thank goodness, but still they're eating things that really aren't natural to them. If they were, I mean, if all cows were that we eat were grass-fed, were really living on pasture, in a proper and more natural concentration, would these both diseases and need for antibiotics and these other various health problems disappear on their own, do you think? Well, I mean, what you say is exactly right. It seems that antibiotics are an effective mask for unsanitary conditions. And so clearly, if you made the conditions better, then there would not be the need to use as many antibiotics in order to keep the animals well. So to answer your question, yes. But then the argument against that, not a common sense argument, or at least not a long-term common sense argument, is that, well, it's a lot cheaper to feed them antibiotics than to keep their quarters clean or to have to set aside pasturage for these animals. But yes, in the long term, it seems that's the only way we're going to solve these problems is to work with nature. We will never drive the bad bugs to the edge of human existence. They will always be with us. What we're essentially doing by the practices you just described there are creating um, stronger bugs. And rather than keeping them at bay, we're really inviting them through the gates by making them stronger and more aggressive, while at the same time, we have fewer means of controlling them. There's a harrowing description in your book of the bushmeat trade in Africa. You've been to markets where there are chimps and monkeys and porcupines and all kinds of wild animals for sale as meat. What are the factors that contributed to this kind of trade in the first place, and what does it have to do with HIV AIDS? It is a harrowing sight to see that you know, the way that these animals are butchered and sold. But at the same time, it's not something unique to Africa. You can find it all over the place in the United States. You can find it in every state. Um, and it just depends on your perspective. For example, there are many people from India who would find an American slaughterhouse no less um, harrowing 
than what I saw in some of the bushmeat markets of, of Gabon, for example. And so this is not an African issue. It's really an American issue, and we do the same thing. It just looks different to us because we're there. We're accustomed to it. But I have to say, I was shocked when I went to my first bushmeat market in Africa, in Gabon, in Libreville, and found animals that are usually equated with zoos or National Geographic on tables or on the ground, you know, types of chimpanzees, uh, mandrills, just an incredible array of wildlife that we usually associate with beauty here being butchered and eaten. You know, we all need food. We all need protein. And in many places in Africa and elsewhere in the world, it's very hard to come by. You know, we have solved the problem here by growing certain animals. And there, because they don't have that luxury of, you know, the same level of domestication and um, production systems and distribution systems, they have turned to hunting wildlife, a vast array of different wildlife, and then they bring it to the markets and then they sell it. Every imaginable animal you can think of, I, I give a description of that as you mentioned um, or suggest in my book. HIV, the uh, virus that causes a human form of that, has an equivalent. It's very, very similar in many monkeys and primates, the great apes. It's SIV, it's a simian immunodeficiency virus. And by the way, it's a natural reservoir uh, for the virus. In other words, it doesn't hurt the animals that it lives in because they have developed the immunity to those. And so they coexist peacefully. However, if you bring some of those animals and you begin to uh, bring humans in touch with them, especially their bodily fluids, I mean, you see you know, butchers there, they have cuts on their hands, they, uh, there's urine all over the place, they're just the bodily fluids of these animals with the SIVs or the human, the equivalent of HIV, they're everywhere. And it's not surprising that people have become contaminated. That is, there's a transmission event, as it's called, that one of these viruses goes from the animal that was butchered into a person. Now, that may happen thousands of times and nobody gets sick. But at some point, you're going to get, for any combination of reasons or variant of the particular um, simian virus, that it's going to find a home in the cells of a human. And it's going to start reproducing in those cells. And then, through various means, it can be transmitted to other people. HIV, as you may know, there are uh, different subtypes of it. One subtype has really been responsible for this global pandemic of HIV. But if you look at it genetically, the fingerprints lead you back to see very clearly that the viruses in the various forms have jumped to people a number of times. And so this isn't something that just happened once. This is something that continues to happen. We can hope that an even more, a worse virus never jumps over. But that's the transmission from a type of pygmy chimpanzee to humans through the bushmeat markets of, of Africa. And then from, you know, once the humans have it, it may have been that this has been going on, you know, since the 1950s or 1940s. And there were not the global transportation routes that we see now. And so it might have been contained to a certain area of Africa. But as these river, you know, traditional river routes uh, opened up to roads, that opened up to airports, that opened up to air routes around the world, suddenly the virus that escaped from these chimps was contained in a 
general sort of way within a, a region of, of Africa, suddenly the gates were open for it spread around the world. And that's what we see has happened. And again, it's a combination of, of let's call it agriculture, of hunting, and changes to transportation methods, many ways for the good, but when it comes to the bugs, they're uh, you know, have plane, have boat, have car, will travel. And what you have as a result of that is real damage to African ecosystems and forests, which then creates another set of problems. And I was thinking of that with respect to the chapter on Lyme disease in your book, which is very, very interesting and very important because it speaks to what happens when we fragment ecosystems. And I think a lot of people have heard about the problem of fragmentation for migrating wildlife. So, you know, wildlife needs to go from point A to point B for seasonal reasons or for mating reasons, but then they encounter highways and suburban sprawl and they can't get there. There's also another piece, which I didn't know about till I read your book, that has to do with illness. When you chop up forests, you reduce the number of animal species that can survive there, and you get all kinds of problems, and one of those problems is Lyme disease. Explain how that works. Well, we all live really on the tip of a scale, you know, or of scales with millions of invisible balances and equilibria. And our health depends on these equilibrium between the bugs that are friendly to us and the bugs that make us sick or worse. And we're just beginning to understand the incredible web of life, which is often seen as more of a spiritual metaphor, the web of life, I'm into. It's a scientific fact. We usually think of human health as ours, and it's ours to win or lose, and we're going to fight that battle against all the microbes, the bugs around us that would make us sick or worse. But it's not that way at all. You know, what has emerged is a field known as whole health or one health. And it's a really a radical way of thinking of human health, that our health is not our health alone by any means. Our health is dependent upon the health of the ecosystems we live in and the other animals that inhabit those ecosystems. And this new field is often visualized uh, with three circles, with parts of each circle overlapping the other one in what's called a Venn diagram. Now, in one circle, you put human health, our health. Another circle, you put animal health. And in the third circle, you put ecosystem health. Now, the area where those three overlap is what is sometimes called one health or whole health. And it's really that we're beginning to understand that we can't be healthy by fighting off all these other, these other two circles or uh, isolating ourselves from them. We have to embrace them and find a place that we can all live. Lyme disease is a great example of this. Um, Lyme disease, which is especially prevalent in the Northeast, is a, a disease that is spread by a, a bug that's transmitted by a deer tick, which has a life cycle that depends on a mouse that it, the one stage of the tick feeds on. And it's through the tick living in this network of the deer and the mice that humans have, in a sense, wandered into by not only moving into the areas where this disease was more prevalent, but in a more fundamental way. It uh, came as a shock to me when the uh, scientist studying this told me that he had begun to be able to predict that after there is an acorn mass, which is a year in which there are a particularly abundant number of acorns, that 
Two years later, more people come down with Lyme disease. How could that possibly be? Yeah. Well, again, if you begin to step back and think about it in just a logical way, if deer are drawn you know, to congregate you know, in the forest around the time of a, an acorn mast, that the mice are able to squirrel away or mice away more acorns and survive, you know, have greater number of offspring the following year, then you have more mice, you have deer congregating, you know, the mice can then infect them with ticks that then infect people. So again, it's changing the whole dynamic. Now here's what is a really most fascinating part of that study, I think. We've all heard that most of us have heard the term biodiversity. That is the sum total of diversity of plants and animals in an area. Well, it turns out that if you decrease biodiversity, that is you decrease the number of species, that you increase the spread of Lyme disease to people. And that is because you really have an effect with a higher biodiversity, a dilution effect, that there are more species the ticks can feed on and therefore, through the way humans and deer interact, you have fewer people getting bitten by ticks that are infected with Lyme disease. And so biodiversity really becomes a protective factor. I and mean, who would have ever thought, you know, the notion of biodiversity is not just kind of an ecologist or environmentalist or advocate dream or goal. It really has everything to do with health. There is also some thought that the reason there is less Lyme disease spread to people in the South East, for example, is because there's a higher level of biodiversity. But as you move up the coast, it's a lower level of biodiversity. So all these could be factors. It's a fascinating idea. And it's also, it's also pretty scary because we're beginning to get the reins on what it means to have a, a long-term view of, of human health. We're also beginning to understand that much of what we do is really pushing evolution over the long term, the evolution of bugs, in such a direction that they're becoming you know, more dangerous to us. And so we need to work with evolution and help them to evolve in a less aggressive way. A good example of this, would, for example, would be the use of antibiotics as commonly prescribed for simple ear infections. When we did that, we were creating more aggressive, virulent types of bacteria that cause ear infections. There we were pushing, we were skewing evolution that on the short term seemed to be to our advantage, but in the long term would only give rise to new generations of more virulent bacteria. We do that in many ways. We need to figure out over the long term ways to begin to turn evolution in a different way. One example might be, for example, having to do with influenza. Influenza is ultimately an agricultural disease. Its natural reservoir is in wild birds, mostly water birds. And it's been that way for tens of thousands of years, and people were fine in many ways with a certain equilibrium. But as agriculture has then pushed some of these water birds, such as ducks, into rice paddies, it has drawn some of the wild species of birds that carry it. We have pigs in the system in many places in China into these kind of self-contained agricultural systems, even family farms. You then suddenly have this virus moving into an area where you have birds, you have fish, you have the ponds, and you have pigs. And pigs have a lot of similarities to humans, especially in the makeup of their tracheas. We have a similar type of cells, so a virus 
from a bird of a flu virus would see a pig trachea and say, hmm, that's not so different from what I'm used to. That looks like a thing to infect, and they do. And so even a, a move as simple as moving pigs away from the paddies or separating pigs on a farm from the ponds where ducks are is a way of really changing the course of evolution. And we can do that, especially when it comes to millions of farms around the world, tens of millions. If everybody did that, you would then gradually begin to see evolution of these viruses towards humans take a, a different tact. You know, we're never going to de-evolve ourselves away from disease. That's part of the human condition. But we can certainly mitigate some of the, the impacts of disease and especially the emerging diseases by means such as this. We can help evolution help the bugs evolve away rather than towards us. Throughout the book, there are examples of diseases, as you're just talking about, that jump from one species to another, not only mad cow disease, but the flu, all sorts of bacteria, viruses. And I have to say, while I was reading it, I felt a lot of sadness, not only for people who get sick and, and often die, but the countless wild and domestic animals that suffer and die. As a veterinarian, what is it like for you to behold and write about all of this? It's sad in the sense that people, it's always on focus to emerging diseases. When you mention the term a new and emerging disease, people immediately think it's only about human disease. In fact, wild populations, many species are suffering at least as bad of waves of emerging disease. You see amphibians, for example, dying. You see seals or you know, dolphins. They are dying. You find huge die-offs of animals around the world. So they're suffering their own catastrophic waves of new and emerging disease, but they don't have a lot of people looking after them, not because there aren't people who care, but because it's difficult to treat a population and it's not realistic in, in many ways. Once a, a virus is loose in an animal population, it's very difficult to do. And so when I look at this, I see the human side of it as, as just a tip of the iceberg of a larger issue. I wrote Seven Modern Plagues to focus on the human side of it because that seemed to me the best window to get people to understand the principles involved and that once they could understand the principles, then they would see that these principles don't make a distinction between you know, me and you and salamanders and frogs and chimps and mountain gorillas. We're all in this together. We're all species. We're all very closely tied. We are brothers, and I don't mean to wax poetic about that. I'm speaking in this line as a scientist. You know, we're, we're all very closely related. We are all kin. And one way or another, we're going to suffer from the same fate. In fact, we already are. So it's really distressful as a, as a veterinarian to see what's happening to the world beyond humans, which sadly, out of sight, out of mind. What do you think are some solutions to these problems that are basically caused by what happens when people mess with ecosystems? I mean, we haven't even really talked that much about climate change, but on top of everything else, that is a huge, huge disruptor that leads to all kinds of problems, including disease. You use the word ecodemic, which I thought was, I'd never heard that before either. I don't think most people want to totally deindustrialize and go back to hunter-gatherers. It's not really an option anyway. So what do solutions look like? I think that what we want to try to do, in addition to treating you know, these diseases as they come up, 
is to really think of, of medicine, modern medicine, as built on a foundation ultimately of a kind of ecological stabilization. And we aren't going to go back to the tree, nor should we, and abandon all the progress we have made through industrial agriculture. But there are alternatives. And I think that longer-term planning for cities or neighborhoods um, in terms of the, now that we have this knowledge, even larger size blocks of forest. When we think of carving up these neighborhoods, maybe it's not unrealistic to think that in city and planning, we should build in certain features that would help to stabilize the environment. Okay, you have to have a certain number of parks or houses arranged such that the neighborhood, the area can support a larger amount of biodiversity, for example. You know, we can certainly look at common sense measures on farms as the CDC even uh, recommended. That is, keep your pigs away from ponds where the ducks are. So the challenge really it's partly knowledge, but we know a lot more. The challenge now has really become an issue of values, I think. As long as we're going to value a five-year corporate plan in which we can make a 2% greater profit, as long as that prevails, it's going to be very hard to think more long-term. Yes, sooner or later, the costs will become high enough, and we will, just like with global climate change. Sea level rise really didn't matter until you found whole cities spending Millions, or in the case of New York, contemplating billions and billions of dollars to fortify themselves against rising seas. So when the pain becomes great enough, then people will begin to implement these. I'm not optimistic that they will do it before there's pain and before the costs become extravagant in in many ways. But humans have had a remarkable ability to adapt and to really embrace new sets of values when the cost of the old values have become too high or, or too painful. And we won't see it in, in our lifetimes, maybe a few generations later where you know, people really will begin to find that the most efficient way of staying healthy might be the environmentalist dream in a way. It takes time, but there are practical long-term methods to do it. And I think in time, those will occur. I certainly hope so. Mark Jerome Walters is a veterinarian, journalist, professor at the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg, The book is Seven Modern Plagues and How We Are Causing Them. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Uh, I enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Please check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and at facebook.com slash radiocafe. Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT solutions and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at steadynetworks.com, and they are part of Dotfoil Computer Services of Santa Fe, where I myself have been bringing my computer for many years, and they are awesome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.